Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. We're going to talk about near-death experiences. So you can invite folks to church on Easter Sunday, and for the following weeks, we're going to be talking about, we have some videos of people, some here in Austin, actually one from our local community, one from our our city chapel family, uh, had a near-death experience. I'll probably have him share a little bit. But the whole idea is just just to spark uh, conversations around this idea. And um, so I want to be intentional about this. I want to activate you all to go into your community and to your school or your job, your workplace, wherever you are, and um, just be open. Be open for people to engage you and ask you about what's after ATX. And um, if you live in New Braunfels, um, Shannon, I'm sorry, but... uh, yeah, you know, maybe maybe ATX is after New Braunfels for them. There, there you go. Okay, so there you go. Just kind of throw it out there. Um, yeah, but uh, our hope is to engage our community. So I just want to put that in your ear and put that in your mind so that next Sunday you're ready. Um, we can do cash, and I think we can do cards as well. Um, and uh, yeah, and so we'll create a little fund for that, and it'll be reimbursing the price of these, and uh, yeah, and uh, we'll we'll go out and engage our community. There are billboards. There are going to be billboards all around our city, because we're not the only ones doing this sermon series. There are other churches. I think it's like 400 different churches that are coming together, and so billboards are all over what's after ATX, and lots of pastors are pouring money and Facebook ads into it, and, and it's great, and so our hope is that the global, the local church, not just City Chapel, but that the, the church of Austin would actually grow and reach people for Jesus during during this season. So anyway, so I want to empower you guys and, and, and help you guys to get into that. Um, but let's jump into the passage we're going to be reading. He's going to be he's going to be reading our our awesome narrator with a really deep voice. Is going to be reading from uh, from Exodus, and we're, we're we're talking about the table of showbread. It's called the table of showbread. So um, this is an article. This is a piece of furniture within the ancient tabernacle. We've been studying the ancient tabernacle, um, but I kind of like this um, video because it shows kind of a cool replica of what that table would have looked like, so check it out. And thou shalt make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border of a handbreadth round about, and thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. And thou shalt make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings in the four corners that are the four feet thereof. Close by the border shall the rings be, for places of the staves to bear the table. And thou shalt make the staves of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, that the table may be borne with them. And thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and the pans thereof, and the jars thereof, and the bowls thereof, wherewith to pour out of pure gold shalt thou make them. And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me alway. Exodus chapter 25, verses 23 through 30. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, this is the table of showbread that we're going to talk about today. This is in the holy place. Thank you, Shannon. Um, this is in the holy place, which is a part of the tabernacle. We've been studying the tabernacle and been studying especially how it applies to us as Christians, how it is prophetic of Jesus, but not only of Jesus, but also of us. And um, what I love about this sermon series um, is that it's not just a study into um, like an ancient tabernacle. It's not just a study that we learn something, Um, although hopefully you do learn some things. Um, We've kind of been digging deep into some stuff, and hopefully you're kind of learning new things each and every week. It's also not just a sermon series where we inspire you to do things. You know, some, some preaching inspires you to do something. Um, that's fine. Uh, hopefully each and every Sunday there's something you can take away for yourself. But ultimately, I feel like the purpose of this sermon series is to um, inform you uh, really about your identity as a Christian. 
that if you are a Christian today, and if you're not a Christian today, that's fine. Um, this, is, this is who we are. Uh, what is the show? This is us. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> um, yeah, this is, this is just, this is, this is who we are. Um, and, and it's important though, because, because we forget who we are. Uh, that's, that's why the show, this is us is, is such a great title because they often forget who they are. Uh, we often forget who we are. If you're not reminded who you are, you'll even forget. You kind of go through a bit of an identity crisis. And I think a lot of Christians are going through identity crises. Crises, that's the right word. Um, because what, what, what happens is there's so many things around being a Christian. So many things that happen. There's, there's church on Sunday morning, right? And we have, we have lights and we have uh, TVs and we have music. There, there, there's, there's, there's so many best-selling authors uh, with books. And, uh, you know, there's a whole Christian uh, music industry now. A whole wing of Sony is making a lot of money off of, you know, worship songs. And it's just, it's just, it's just interesting that we can sometimes get distracted, which is why I like that song, Take Me Back to Where It Started. Because ultimately, I think that's what God wants us to do sometimes. Is It's not that anything wrong with worship songs or uh, the fact that worship music isn't awful like it was in the 80s you know it's like <laughs> people are actually singing on key now and that's lovely um you know it's not incredible but it's just not terrible and so you know i mean that's, that's fine like god's not against lights obviously he's not against buildings god enjoys i think when people come together and and the fact that we have a building is a blessing and so we're we're appreciative of all these things and 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 it's good but it's not who we are. So you have to sometimes remember who you are. There's a lot of good stuff added to it, but at the core of it, who we are as Christians is we are worshipers. This is, this is just who we are. This is the crux of who we are, that God is seeking worshipers, Jesus told the woman at the well. Women, God said God's seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. He's looking for worshipers. And, and in the church, he has found worshipers. He has called us out of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his glorious son so that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. So this is, this is who we are because, because, because before City Chapel had this building, we were worshipers. Before we were meeting at a school, we were worshipers, right? We, we, were, we, were, we were meeting at the Chavez's house and there was like you know 15 of us worshiping we were meeting out at my farm around a campfire we were worshiping that's not because we just like singing because most of us can't sing at all <laughs> come on somebody uh, most of us can't carry a tune in a basket we're not singers we're worshipers because it's, it's coming from within us. We have, we have seen the majesty of God. We've been, we've been, we've been distracted, actually, from, from the stuff of this world. There is something heavenly that has caught our glimpse and caught our attention. And we're obsessed. We're obsessed with the presence of God. So if you come in and you wonder why some people get really loud and why some things happen, that's because we're obsessed with the presence of God. We are not concerned with what you think of us. We're not concerned with, with how you view us. We're not concerned with how you label us. We're not concerned with what is written about us, what is said about us, what is done. We're not politicians. We're not looking for a vote, right? Like, we're not Republicans and we're not Democrats. We are worshipers. Our focus, our gaze is on something much higher, much greater. That's why we're often called peculiar people and strange people because sometimes we don't even notice the trends and the fads of this world because, honestly, they don't really apply to us because we're not, we're not looking to get Instagram followers. We're, we're, we're already following somebody. And we're already infatuated with him. We're already obsessed with him. And that's why sometimes things seem a little crazy, right? Like, like you know, like right around 25 years ago in a little town called Brownsville, Florida, there were some kind of crazy worshipers. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, people are like, I don't, I don't know that I really like that. They, they kind of get loud and they get rolling on the floor and stuff. And, well, sometimes crazy things happen when worshipers come into the presence of God. And, and it's just part of being a worshiper, that when you are a worshiper, you're not distracted by someone's worship. <laughs> you're not distracted by someone's worship. You're distracted by someone's disobedience. You're distracted by someone's arrogance. You're distracted by someone's apathy. I'm often distracted by people's unbelief and their lack of worship. I'm like, how are you, how are you in the presence of God and still checking your grocery list? How does this work? I don't, I don't understand that. Like, that's weird to me. 
that your mind wanders to so many other things when the God of the universe is revealing himself in glorious splendor and detail and majesty and his presence is filling the room and, and you're concerned about what people think about you. I'm, 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 I'm just straight. That, 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 that's, that, that's weird. That stands out as odd to me. Uh, I come from a long line of worshipers. I mean, not, not physically. Physically, my parents were the first ones saved in our, in our whole family that any of us know about. But I mean, like my family according to faith, my family according to the presence of God, my family of faith is a long line of worshipers. We were worshiping long before the TV cameras started rolling and they started recording our live worship experiences. And we had planned times of, uh, uh, what is it called, uh, 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 inspirational singing, you know, and we, we had calculated uh, cues for people to clap and things like We were worshiping long before uh, it was mass produced and pa- packaged and boxed and sold for $1.99 on iTunes. It was, it was long before we, 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 were, we were worshiping back, like back, like we, we, crazy worship is the kind that isn't, is, that doesn't need the right setting. It's the kind that you don't have to set the mood for me. You don't have to play anything on the keyboard or on the guitar. I, my heart is already set to worship. And my heart is so set to worship. Like Jim Elliott said, like worshipers, like Jim Elliott died on the, on the shores of Ecuador because he was a worshiper. If you don't know Jim Elliott, he was trying to bring the, the name of Christ and the, the, the story of the gospel to people who had never heard the gospel. And he knew that they were savages. He knew that they were dangerous. And they killed him. And they stuck a spear through his chest. But before they did that, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's, that's the statement of a worshiper. Yes. Worshippers aren't worried about their welfare. Worshippers aren't worried about their, about, about their placement in the community. They, don't, they may not even have a savings account because they're not, they're not saving up for anything. They're spending everything they got right here and right now on the one that they believe is most worthy and most worth of their worship and of their finances and of their very lives. Uh, Revelation said that they overcome Satan by the word, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So you have to know who you are to have a testimony about who you are. But then on top of that, he said that by the word of their testimony that they, they loved not their lives unto death. That's who we are. You might look around and find a lot of people that love their lives. They are not worshipers. They're, they're lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money. And they heap, among, they heap to themselves. The time will come and men will not endure sound teaching because they, they're love, so lo- in love with themselves that they will heap unto themselves false teachers to, to ta- tell them things, to itch their ears, that ever learning, they will never come to the knowledge of the truth. They'll never change who they are. They'll never become worshipers. But, but the true church has always been worshiping, whether it was on the streets of Azusa, you know, you know, you know, you know, you don't know nothing about that. That was crazy. That was crazy right there. That was crazy. There was a story where the fire of God like fell like literally. And I'm not just talking about like an emotional experience. I mean, fire came through the roof of a particular church and just 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 dwelt there. It was right in the middle of the church. And, and, and nobody was distracted by the fire because they were distracted by Jesus. They were worshipers, you know, so they're not distracted by it. But the fire department in the local town. <laughs> They were not necessarily worshipers, and so they said, "There's a fire in the church." And so, the fi- like they're worshiping, singing, they're they're praying and stuff. And literally, the fire trucks pulled up to the church to put out the fire, and they were surprised and shocked to see that the church members were still in the church worshiping with the flame just going from inside the building through the roof over the roof into the sky. And they were like, "These people are." Are crazy. They, well, they're, 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 they're worshipers. They're obsessed with the presence of God. And that, that, that was just normal. Lots of stuff like that happened. And long before, long before that, there was some folks down in South Wales in, in a chapel called Mariah Chapel who were crying out for God to move. They were worshipers. This guy named Evan Roberts, and he's calling on God to move in Wales. And then 100,000 people are saved within three months. And that's normal for worshipers. 
that's, that's what worship is. That's what worship does. That's what the presence of God does when, it, when he begins to come on to a community and just unveil and unfold himself, right? And Duncan Campbell, talking of the Hebrides revival, said that, said, said that it was like a blossoming of God, like a flower that was unfolding into a community without the aid of preaching or evangelistic efforts, as he called them. There were no tracks being handed out. There was no singers with hymnals out there. It was just an unfolding of God in a community. This is what worshipers live for. This is what we love. This is what we're obsessed with. Because at the end of the day, like we, we did not start City Chapel to create more programs and small groups and talking in places where we could learn more. Because if, I, if, if we thought that the community needed more knowledge... We would have started a school, but we really feel like the community needs more worshipers, that within this community, there must be more worship ascending into heaven. And so this is our obsession. We're obsessed with this because, you know, in 1904, they were obsessed with the whales. But before that, they were riding around the Midwest on, on horseback. You know, with nothing but a Bible and, and like a little notebook. And they're preparing their sermons like in little camps and by firelight. And they're meeting with people. And, or Wesley was out, out in the middle of fields in Europe preaching because he got kicked out of churches. Because sometimes the physical church is the enemy of the worshiper. Whenever the physical church is more concerned about worshiping itself. But we don't, we don't need buildings. We don't need cathedrals. We don't need chairs and lights and microphones. Just, just give us a field and we'll worship there. We'll yeah. share the gospel there. We'll, because God is worthy, like whether we're in a field or whether we're in a cathedral. And sometimes the cathedral is a distraction from the worship. Sometimes we're distracted by our wealth. We're distracted by our prominence, by our place of power. And sometimes we get so distracted as a church that we don't even, we don't even look anything like the church. And, but even then, there are worshipers hiding out in monasteries. One guy named Martin Luther who's reading the Bible, and he's realizing, wait a minute, this is not what I'm being taught by the, by, 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 by the Pope or by the, the cardinals or by the bishops or by the local friar. Like, like this, I'm reading this, and I'm worshiping him, but this isn't what my church is allowing me to teach. So he nailed nearly 100 questions to a door of a major cathedral, and the church couldn't answer one of them because they weren't worshiping anymore. They were interested in power. They were interested in money. They were interested in attendance records, but they weren't interested in worshiping. And so they, they burned us at the stake. And they put us on the rack and they stretched us until our tendons snapped and our, and our muscles were out of joint. They took away our children, but they couldn't take away our worship. They could take away our tongue, but they couldn't take away our worship. They could take away, pluck our eyes out, but they couldn't steal our worship from us because we love not our lives unto death. We weren't worshipers of ourselves. We weren't trying to make a name for ourselves. We weren't interested in celebrity fame or YouTube likes or hits on Facebook. We were only interested in the glory and majesty of Jesus, and we weren't willing to give that up for anything. So you can take our land, you can take our liberty, you can take our life, you can take our role as a father or as a husband but you cannot take my role as a worshiper I am going to be a worshiper and long before the holy Roman empire which was neither holy nor Roman <laughs> long before the holy Roman empire tried to steal our worship the Roman empire tried to steal our worship and they fed us to lions and they boiled us alive and they put us in furnaces and they made a public spectacle of us but we weren't interested in gaining their approval. We weren't interested in how we looked. We weren't interested in what others thought about us. We were interested in worship. You can go all the way back to 120 people in a little upper room on the day of Pentecost and you'll find them worshiping. No cameras rolling, nobody noticing, nobody taking effect, no, 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 no budgets and no, 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 no organization. I'm not against organization, but, but at the end of the day, we're not organizers, we're worshipers. Like, that's what we are. We're not counters. We're worshipers. We're not singers. We're not coffee and donut givers. We're worshipers. And all the other stuff that comes around us is good, and it's lovely, and it's great. We're, I mean, we're not greeters either. We're worshipers. We greet because it's our act of worship. It's part of worship. We serve coffee and donuts because it's part of our worship. But if we ever lose who we are, if we ever forget who we are, we'll just go through the motions and do the stuff without the actual reason why we started doing it to begin with. 
And so sometimes you have to hit rewind a little bit and look back. And that's why I say I come from, this is my family line. These are my forefathers. It was their blood that was, that was shed. It was, it was their determination to worship God no matter what. That's where I'm coming from. And then even before the day of Pentecost, that's what I like about this tabernacle because you can hit rewind and you're going to go back even 3,500 years from now and you're going to find a bunch of poor people in a desert in a tent. And they're worshiping. They're my forefathers. That's where I come from. If you don't, if you don't have any idea of your family history, you, you literally don't know who you are. So you have to find your identity. You have to understand where you come from, the kind of people that made you, the people that forged you. The, 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 it'll help explain so much. And if that's true in the physical, it's very true in the spiritual. We have to remember who we are. I hope that you come to church and you learn something every now and then. I hope you come to church, you're inspired every now and then. But it would be a shame if you just came to church and you never realized who you were. And you thought that we were just a group of people who did good things in a community. Where you thought that we were just a group of people that, 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 that were smart or wise and we were loving. If you thought that we were just, like, that, all that's good, but that's not why we're doing it. That's not who we are. You can take away all this stuff and we'll, we'll, we'll still build a tent <laughs> in the middle of a desert. Because it is the heart of God. He is seeking worshipers. Deep calls to deep. We didn't wake up one day and decide to worship. He came down to Mount Sinai and said, build me a place that I may dwell with you. It's his heart that's driving, or I should say pulling us, <laughs> drawing us in. And that's what the tabernacle is all about. Each step of the tabernacle is a call from our Heavenly Father calling us into worship, calling us into His presence. And so as we study each, each, each article, it's true that it's prophetic of this and of that and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's, it's God's invitation to come sit with Him, to come dwell with Him, to come and find that He is worth more than gold, that he is worth more than prestige, that he is worth more than life itself. And so, so today at the table of showbread, I think is, 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 is especially true that this is God's message to his people. He said, I want you to build a table and, and put it in the holy place. And, and uh, just, just to go back over, it's, it's made of acacia wood. Acacia wood is, is wood you find in the desert. And it's the kind of wood, it grows really slowly. But because it grows so slowly, it's very strong. <laughs> and that's the, that's the kind of stuff God does. He doesn't mass produce things. He doesn't rush through things because he knows that, there's, that, that if you rush to the, the product then, and you shortcut the process, and when you shortcut the process, you don't have the strength that was intended to be in the thing. And so he, he says, I want you to use a case you would because it takes really long time to grow. And your journey with God is going to take a really long time to grow. And your walk with him is going to take a really long time. But even while you're waiting, he's still working. He's still strengthening. He's producing something that is stronger. And so the, the, the time it takes is worth it. So he says, I want you to find a case you would. It's not, you can't just plan it today and get it next week. You're going to have to, you're going to have to look for stuff that's been planted a long time ago. And so we find, they find a case of wood and then you have to carve it down and shape it to be in the shape of a table. And then you need to overlay the whole thing with gold. And, and this is, this is actually prophetic of Jesus because Jesus was both God and man at the same time. So he was, he was, he was a corruptible thing like wood. But he was also an incorruptible thing like gold. So uh, wood, if you put it in the fire, it'll burn up. No, even, even acacia wood, even strong wood. Uh, but gold, you put it in the fire and it comes out as gold. Like it burns up all the impurities, but whatever, if it was gold when it went in the fire, it's gold when it comes out of the fire, and that's Jesus. He was, he was, he was, he was God when he was born, and he was God when he, when he died. He was, he was God when he was tempted, and he was God uh, by, by Satan himself. He was God when he was redeeming the world. He was always God, and he was always man at the same time. So he knows our frailty. He knows our temptation. He knows what we go through. But on top of that, there's this, there's this divinity about him, and he is the table. So the table is prophetic of him, and it's interesting when you look at the shape of the table, uh, and God gives the dimensions for it. It's basically 18 inches by 36 inches. And it's the exact same dimensions, the exact same shape as the tabernacle itself. 
So, and, he, and, and God says, I want you to create this crown molding, what we would call it. God called it a crown in the King James, but we would call this a crown molding about a hand's breadth up. So it's, it's from your pinky, a man's pinky to his thumb. That's how high that crown molding needed to be. And so literally when the priest would walk over to the, the, this little table, it was, only, it was only about, I think it was 36 inches tall. It was only about three feet tall. This is not a tall table. It's the exact same height, by the way, as the Ark of the Covenant. Interesting. It's the exact same height, and it's the exact same dimensions as the tabernacle itself. And so when the priest would walk over to this table, he would be looking down on basically what God was looking down at when God's looking down on the tabernacle. Because all around the tabernacle, there's, this, there's, this, there's these curtains positioned all the way around it. And so he's looking at a heavenly perspective of the tabernacle, which Jesus is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is prophetic of his body. And so when the priest walks over to it, he's getting a God-eye perspective, a God's view of the place of worship of his people. And God said, okay, so I want you to make it look just like this. And then in the middle of it, in the book of Leviticus, he tells us about the bread. So he says, take the finest flour in Leviticus 24, verse 5. Take the finest flour and bake 12 loaves of bread using two-tenths of an ifah for each one. That's, that's about a gallon of flour. Now, I'm not a chef, but that's a lot <laughs> per loaf. All right, and remember, there's 12 loaves. He said, I want you to use a whole gallon of the finest flour. Now, uh, the, the Hebrews say this, this is not like the kind of flour you buy in a store nowadays. This is much finer than that. It had to be ground, in, and they didn't have processes like we have. This is all by hand. So it's much finer than that. And God said it had to be so fine uh, that, that actually the, the, the Hebrews say it's kind of like um, what we would call pasta. The flour for pasta, what is that called? Semen, sem, semolina, there you go. So it's, that, it's, that ultra, it's so fine that it can get compressed into, into something very thick and very starchy and very heavy. Um, the Jews say that each loaf weighed 11 pounds. You take, 11, you, you take one gallon of semolina and a <laughs> Apparently, you bake that sucker, and each loaf is 11 pounds. That's massive. I don't, I, I don't know much about, like, stuff, but I, like, I know pizza crusts. You know what I'm saying? And I get some cheese and some extra cheese and deep dish, and that's not 11 pounds because, um, you know, I can't easily throw that around with all my muscles and everything. But anyway... 11 pounds per. Now, this is crazy. So God, but God gives the instructions. I want, I want you to use a whole gallon and then arrange them in two stacks, six on each stack. So two stacks, six on one side, six on the other side. On the table of pure gold before the Lord. By each stack, put pure incense. Uh, and the King James says frankincense. So that's, 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 what, that's one of the things that the wise men brought to Jesus was frankincense. And God gives the purpose for the frankincense. He says, this, this frankincense, which is either beside or on top of the, the loaves, was a memorial portion to represent the bread. Which is weird. You, you have the bread. Why do you need to represent the bread? Well, he's representing the bread because at the end of this, you're, you're going to read, God wants them to take the bread and to feed the priests with it. But the, the, the frankincense was to represent the bread and to be poured out onto fire, lifted up to God. So God has two things on the table. One is bread for God's people. The other is frankincense or aroma or perfume for him. So God, God wants two things to come out of every church service. Something, some people to be fed and for him to receive something. So he wants something, and he wants people to get something. It's so fascinating to me. He says, he says that'll represent the bread, because you can't give me bread. You give people bread, but you give me worship. You give people bread, but you give me praise. You give people bread, but you lift up something to me. And that's what the, that's what the frankincense represents. He says, it's going to represent the bread to me. So it's as if you gave the bread. I think Jesus said that. In as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto. So it's as if you gave me the bread. In verse 8, he says, this bread, the bread, going back to the bread, is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath. In other words, they, they set it out for seven days. At the end of seven days, they swap it out for fresh bread on the Sabbath. 
on behalf of the Israelites. This bread is on behalf of the Israelites. As a lasting covenant, it belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offering presented to the Lord. Now, when, when, when you read, as we've been reading about the various food offerings, right, uh, the priest would eat from, say, the altar for the sin offering. They would get a portion of, of the five different offerings there. And yet God says, no, no, this is the most holy thing that the priests are ever going to eat. Why is that? I, I think it is because this, this bread is a representation of the nation of Israel. He says, he says this is on behalf of the Israelites. Now, I want you to think for just a minute that when God created his perfect tabernacle, a reflection of the real one, which is in heaven, he created one on earth. He said, okay, I want you to have within the holy place. Well, first of all, in the outer court, I want you to have a place for sin where blood will be shed. Okay, check. We have the altar. And then he says, I want you to have a basin where there's washing. Okay, check. Where we're going to be purified. We'll be washed with the word. And then I want you to come into the holy place. And in the holy place, we're going to have a, 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 a candle, a lampstand, a massive lampstand, 94 pounds of gold. We talked about that last week. A massive lampstand. That's, that's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. And then I want you over here, just in front of the, the Ark of the Covenant, between the veil, I want you to have this, this, this altar of, of incense. We're going to talk about that next week. And that's worship and prayer going up to God at all 24-7. And then on the Holy of Holies, there's this, there's this Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwells. But then he said, I want you to put in the holy place this table of bread. And it's like, well, well that's weird. It's so weird that actually uh, 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 Merman, I want to get the name right, Mermides, one of the, one of the greatest rabbi scholars, uh, couldn't explain it. He said, I don't know why God had us put bread in the holy place. And that's tricky for, 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 a, for a Jewish, for a rabbi to not know why. They come up with reasons for like everything. You guys should read some of their writings. It's hilarious. And Mermides is like, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know about the bread. I don't know why it's there. Because you, you, you have to understand, they, these, these are people who had been slaves for 400 years. They had been serving a master who their serving this master was for the master's good alone. And God said, look, this is, this is a little different. I know it's going to seem weird to you. But I want you to create this bread, 12 loaves, because there's 12 tribes of Israel. And we're going to call it the bread of presence. That's what, uh, that's what he said there on, on, on the video. Uh, the actual uh, Hebrew is the bread of the show or the showing of the face. That's why it's called show bread, because it's a revealing of the face. The Talmud calls it the bread of the faces, plural, because there are plural loaves. And each loaf stood for a different face of the tribe of Israel. Now think about that for just a minute. God in his in his perfect place of worship reflecting the one which is in heaven everything is about him everything is about his glory everything about is about his majesty until you get to this table where suddenly there are these other faces it's almost like now 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 the regular jew wasn't allowed to come into the holy place the priest was and so the priest would come in every single day and he would see those 12 stacks and he would remember the people who were not in there it's almost like God's saying, look, I know humans can get really confused about this because it's easy to imagine a God who just wants you to serve him for his benefit alone. But I want you to remember that I'm a God who sees the faces of all of my people before me continually. I don't want, and this is so tricky because even Christians in America, we come in and we forget about all the people that are out there. And God is not forgotten about them. God is obsessed with them. God is so obsessed with them that he wants them in his holy place. They're not even worthy to be in there. Like the 12 tribes, they weren't always behaving. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some stories. If you want to read the Old Testament, there's some stories, multiple tribes, not behaving, all that kind of stuff. And God never said, get their bread out of here. He always wanted to keep them in his presence. He, his, their faces were ever before him. This is why the psalmist says that he numbers the, the, the hairs on my head, not because he's keeping track for some kind of other reason, but because his, my face is ever before him. It's always on his mind. Just hypothetically, what if God was the kind of God 
Who watches you when you wake up in the morning? Who watches you when you go to sleep at night? What if he was the kind of God who's aware of when you come and when you go, when you rise and when you lay down? What if he was the kind of God who, who, who had all of your days numbered in his book and he had written about every... What if he was journaling about you? And this is not just a hypothetical situation. This is scripture. That all of my days, he's written them all out. He's written my diary. He, like My life is in his diary. And it's not to say that, you know, that, 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 that he's not concerned about his glory. But he is a God who is at the same time concerned about his glory and our good at the exact same time. And he wants us to be with him. And he's prepared a table for, he's, he's, he's prepared this way. And so, and so when, when we come to God, it's not just the God who's like, well, you better do what's right. And you better shape up and you better, you better figure things out. No, he is a heavenly father who, 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 who longs for us to be in his presence so much that he created a table with a representation of our faces on it. What if that's heaven as well? What if all the earth is represented in heaven? This is why any time people get really close to God, they start sharing him with others. Because when you get close enough to the heart of God, you realize that the heart of God is yearning for the lost, for the hurting, for the broken. And we, I think we've twisted things so much that we've either made it like all about God and no, God doesn't care about us. And what that does is it produces in us the type of behavior that runs from him when we're not perfect. That runs from him when we mess up. And literally, God's like, I never took your loaf away. I never, I never lost track of your face. No matter how dirty it got, no matter how messed up it was, I never lost the vision of your face because I just, I just wanted you to be with me. And I created a way for you to be holy, for you to come into my presence. But it's not like when you walk into his presence, it's the first time he saw you. Right. <laughs> he was watching you and and interceding for you all the way along. I was reading in Song of Songs yesterday, actually, and it just blew my mind. Song of Songs is a, is a book of the Bible that nobody ever talks about in church because it's all about romantic love. And um, apparently God, yeah, yeah, that is all right. God is, God is so into romantic love, he wrote an entire book on it. And it's literally inspired, it's inspired scripture by the Holy Spirit. And it's all about romantic love. And it's also prophetic of God, Jehovah, and his people. Which is why the Jews said, man, this is inspired scripture. So they put it in the canon. Christians have also accepted it as inspired scripture because it is Jehovah, it is Jesus, and his bride, the church. And it's a beautiful love story. So you, you really ought to read it sometime. I was, I was going through it just as a personal thing I'm doing, like with me and Roe, and I was looking for the guy parts. Because really there's two parts to it, or three parts, but there's two main parts. There's a, there's a man named Solomon, and he's talking to his bride. And then there's a bride known as the Shunammite woman. We really don't know her name necessarily, but it's, it's, it's this dialogue between the two of them. It's going back and forth. And so I just wanted to study what the guy has to say, because I'm not a girl, so I don't really need to know that. Um, I want to know what the guy has to say. And so anyway, so I was, I was studying, and, and basically you have to go, you, you have to skip the whole first chapter to even, the guy doesn't even get a chance to talk. I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm, maybe he's on to something. The whole first chapter is the lady talking. And um, she's, got, she's got good stuff to say, though. She's got good stuff to say. Uh, so it's all good. Some, women, women can be leaders, right? So she's kind of leading the way here. So she's, 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 she's talking, first chapter. And then you get into the second chapter, and you come to chapter 2, verse 1, which, which traditionally, growing up in the church, I, I always thought this was, this was the groom, or this was Christ. And, and, and yet, I was reading in the NIV, and it's got labels over each one. It's got, like, uh, the Sol- Solomon and Shunammite woman, Solomon Shunammite so you understand who's saying what. And it wasn't broken down like that. It was broken down as the beginning of chapter 2 is still the woman talking. And this is what she says. She says, I am the rose of Sharon. I am the lily of the valley. And that messed me up, because growing up in church, I used to sing that Jesus was the sweet rose of Sharon, and Jesus was the lily of the valley. So, not to burst your religious bubble, but you got it wrong. (laughs) 
Like, and, and, and just in case, like, you think maybe the NIV messed up, when you keep reading verse 2 of chapter 1, the, the groom says, he says, My darling is a lily among thorns. So when she starts believing it about herself, he starts revealing more about what that means to him. So, so often, it blows my mind that, that we, we almost can't conceive of a God who would tell us that we are the lily of the valley. We like a God better who places himself in that role. Because, well, woe is me. I'm just a humble, messed up, blah, blah, blah. No. The, 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 the groom of your soul looks in the entire valley of human history. And he sees one lily. See, 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 when she was talking about herself, she said, I'm the lily of the valley, meaning I've grown up in a really harsh environment. I've grown up where, where I wasn't tended to a lot. I didn't get a lot of water, didn't catch a lot of sun. There wasn't a lot of what I needed. I did not have a lot of what I needed, but I broke through the ground. I pressed through. She was talking about her ability, her strength to break through all the stuff that was against her. And then when she finally figured out that she had broken through all the stuff that was against her, then the groom came and said, yeah, and you are more beautiful. Compared to you, all the other flowers are like thorns. The same stuff that produced hardness and sharpness in other people has only produced beauty in you. And that's all I see in you is the beauty that has been produced by the valley that you were planted in. And I picked, I picked you. I chose you before the foundations of the world. I chose you. I picked you. And this is, this is the bride of Christ. We have been chosen by him. This is who we are. We worship him not because if we don't, he's going to squash us. We worship him because out of the entire valley of all of human history, he found one thing that caught his eye, that brought brightness to the valley. The thing that made him happy, the thing that brought him joy, he said, oh, I'm going to pick that one. That's what he did for us. And when he, when he, when he creates this, this tabernacle, he doesn't just want a bunch of blood and guts out there. He wants a representation of the one that his soul loves. The one that he calls friends. That's what the word darling means in, in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 2. He says, my, my friends. Which is great marriage advice, by the way. It's the first title he gives her. You might want to figure that one out first. It's the first title because there's this friendship between the two of them. And there's a friendship between me and God. There's a friendship there. Like, he's there for me. He's supporting me. He's, he's, he's believing the best in me. He's never left me or forsaken me. He's not just like this scary father figure. He's my friend. He comes alongside me. I can, I can mess up in front of him. <laughs> you know, I can make a mistake in front of him. I can say what I'm feeling in front of him. I don't have to say thee and thou all the time. I can, I can say what I'm feeling. That's what, that's what friends are for. They're, they're friend, friend, uh, the Proverbs says a friend loves at all times. He never stopped loving me. He never forgot about the one that he picked. He never turned his back on the one that he chose. And so he picked me and he placed me in his presence. And he placed a, a remembrance of me to, to be there before him at all times. It's my face that's ever before him. And it is the, 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 the loaves that are in the holy place. They are uh, representative of the, the immense generosity of our father. So much so that the Talmud the Talmud says, and the Talmud, according to Jewish scholars, the Talmud is like the second most holy thing next to the Torah. But the Talmud is like writing its commentary on the Torah. Uh, the Talmud says that if a person wants to become rich, he should point his feet to the north when he prays. <laughs> because the table was positioned on the north side of the holy place. And so they see the table, the north side of the temple, and the showbread was a perpetual reminder of God's generosity. And a channel for God's abundance and prosperity, which is true when God is your true north. <laughs> Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. When God is your true north, there are the blessings of the Lord make one rich and he adds no sorrow to it. When God is your true north, there is blessings that come alongside of you. And I'm not a prosperity preacher because I don't believe only in prosperity. But I do believe that one side, one whole side, the north side was dedicated to God's immense desire to bless his people. I mean, think about it. They're baking 
12 gallons of bread every week. That's 132 pounds, according to the math whiz over here. That's on top of this little table that's 18 inches wide by 36 inches long. That's not a big table. You, these loaves are literally like hanging off the edge. I mean, it's pressed down, shaken together, running over. It's like, it's like you walk up to it and the blessings of God is just draped over this thing. Like it's just barely holding the table. It can barely hold all the stuff. And these guys are in the desert in order to have a hundred and something pounds like you know you, you, you need to have a lot of wheat in order to have wheat you need to have some crops they're in the desert how in the world are they growing all of this wheat and producing all of this wheat i'm telling you just by them bringing their dough to church come on somebody just by them bringing their dough to church they are they are testifying to the goodness and the glory of god that he enabled them to have any dough to begin with and like I shared in the first service, I'm now giving financially to God more than I was ever able to save myself. Like, this is where God just, you try to bless him, and then he's like, here, how about you eat some of that? How about you have some of that? Like, it's really all for you anyway. Just give me the worship. I'll give you all the bread. I'll get, come on, somebody. I'll give you all the bread that you want. Now, that's, that's more modern than dough. But anyway, I'll, like, I'll, I'll, I'll feed you. I'll make sure you have all this stuff, and you just bring me the worship. These guys, every Sunday, they're coming to church. They're bringing their dough, and it's, it's a manifestation of the miracle that God's performing in their life every single week. It is, the bread is a symbol of the blessing because it came from their blessing. And this is, this is by the way, this is, this, is how we, this is how we fight our battles. That's what the song says. This is how I fight. There's a table that you prepared before me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So this is, this is how I fight my, my battles. I sit down at the table that's already been prepared. See, God said, I want you to make the table before my kids get to the table. Because, because that, parents make the table. I don't know if you have kids, but kids just pull up and eat. But, but, but parents set the table. Parents prepare the food. Parents spend time in the kitchen. And kids are like, I'm hungry. When is dinner ready? And mom's slaving away in the, come on, somebody. Mom's slaving away in the kitchen. Well, th okay, so before you even got to church, God was preparing something. He was slaving away in the kitchen for you. Before you even decided that you would even try God, God was slaving away in the kitchen for you so that by the time you pull up your chair at his table, he already has this provision pulled up for you and you haven't done anything to earn it that's called mercy and you wonder why God is so merciful because he's he, your face has been before him the entire time the whole time he's been in the kitchen he's been thinking about you and everything you've been going through all of your life he knows why you're so broken he knows why you're so tired I don't mean like physically tired. I mean your heart is tired. You got wrinkles on your heart. You might be in your 30s, but you feel like you're in the, your 70s because you've been so burdened down with the valley you had to push through just to be alive. And he knows. And he's been preparing the table for you. And so this is how you fight your battle. This is how you become spiritual. This is how you become holy. You sit down at the table, you get out your steak knife, and you start cutting into that really thick, apparently very, very nutrient-rich uh, pasta bread. And you start chopping into that, and you start eating of what God has provided. I think, I think the scripture says you feed on his faithfulness. Because your doubts pull up a table right next to you. And your fears pull up a table, and your unworthiness pulls up a table, and your past pulls up a table, and your sin pulls up a chair, and they're all pulling up chairs at this table, and they're all sitting there in the presence of your enemies, and your father, your king, your, your, your redeemer, your, the lover of your soul is providing food for you. He's not concerned with the other folks that are sitting at the table. He made this for you. So, so you have to feed on his faithfulness and starve your doubts. 
You have to feed on his faithfulness and starve your fear. You have to feed on his faithfulness and starve your skepticism. You have to feed on, your, on his faithfulness and starve all the other things that have pulled up the table. This is how I fight my battles. I feed on the faithfulness of my father. And, he, and I just sit down and he says, hey, how did it, how, how's it going today? Well, Lord, I kind of had this going on and I had that going on. And, and, and the enemy keeps telling me that you're not faithful. But, but, I, but I believe that you are because look what you've done for me so far. The enemy keeps telling me that you're not that you don't love me but look but I believe that you do because look at how much you provided for me see sometimes sometimes we have worship that is a sort of our God is able kind of worship you know like we're bringing the wheat and we're like man look at all that God has done but sometimes God it doesn't seem like has done very much so, so, so it is true that we worship out of abundance, but we don't only worship out of abundance. Because God is a God who is, uh, our God is able kind of God, but he's also an even if kind of God. You know, even if I lose my job, even if I, I, I am divorced, even if, like he's an even if kind of God too, along with the, our God is able. Because lots of people can, you know, be excited and be happy and cheerful when things are going well you don't have to have God in your life for that but man even if when you get the even if part that gets tough and that's where a lot of people stop that's where a lot of people don't want to sit at the table of his faithfulness but the truth is even when they were going through times of famine even when they were going through, through times of difficulty the bread was still before him God's desire was still there for his people, even if they messed up, even if they fell, even if they walked away, even if they were struggling, even if they were fighting, even, even if they're fighting amongst each other. He said, keep the bread there. And because it's a symbol, it's because the, the prosperity, like, you know, you, you mentioned prosperity and it's nice, but it's just, it's, it's a little nice thing. It's the... Um, it's the, uh, you know, it's the frosting on the cake. Um, it's the wedding day on the marriage. Like, it's nice, but can we just get into life? You know, like, I remember when we were engaged, like, the wedding was a hassle. I was just happy for that to be done. <laughs> Pictures are great to look back on, but my goodness, what a lot of work. Like, can we just get married, get a house, and just get going? And that, that's like the, the financial prosperity, it's, 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 just, it's just the wedding on the marriage, it's the icing on the cake, it's the, it's, the, it's the token gesture of a God who, who the real value of which is his love, which is much stronger than that and much greater than that. It's, and, and this is what in the Talmud, this, this, this is what the Kohathites would say. So um, whenever they uh, uh, got an actual temple, not just a tabernacle, they built a temple and they had three major feast days a year, the Jews did. And all of Jerusalem, all of Israel would come to Jerusalem on these three major feast days. Uh, and they would, they, would, they, would, they would get together. And during those days on the Sabbath is the day when you change out the bread. That's the day when, when, when the priest would take out the old bread and would put in the new bread, right? And the old bread was to be fed to the priest. And the priest would, would bring it out. And the Hebrews would say that it, it was kept um, just as warm as the day it was baked. And it never got crusty. It never got moldy. Because God doesn't want his people eating nasty old moldy bread. So it was, it was miraculously kept. As long as, it was in, as long as it was in there. By the way, uh, Israel was miraculously kept for 40 years in the wilderness. The Bible says their, their, their shoes never wore out for 40 years. Yeah, those are some really good Nikes. And that's, and that's not just on pavement. That's on hills and rocks and stuff. And their clothes never ran out. Why? Because they were miraculously kept. Because the favor of God is not always like an abundance of things rolling off the table. Sometimes just the fact that something always remains on the table. There's always, I've been old and now, I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous begging for bread because there's always bread on the table. It's not always more than I need, but there is always my God shall supply all of my needs. 
And that's part of the prosperity that God gives. It's not just, oh, it's not a jet, it's a jumbo jet. It's just, sometimes it's just a car. I always had the car to get me from point A to point B. There was always something on the table. Sometimes it was rolling over, and that was awesome, but there was always something there. Every time I came to the table, my father had prepared something for me. Even when I squandered it. Even when I made bad decisions and got in the stock market. Don't do that. Even when I, <laughs> unless you know what you're doing. Uh, even when I, when I messed up, God always made sure something was on the table. I know people that are really bad with money, and there's always something on the table. <laughs> Because God is their God is their provider. If I were to ask how many of you are the main provider of your home or the breadwinner, that, that would be a trick question. So don't raise your hand. Because if you are a follower of God, if you are a son, then then you're in your father's house. And my God shall supply all of my needs. He is my provider. I am not the maiden breadwinner of the Fleming household. It's not on me. I don't have to carry that weight. I have to go to the table. And there's always something on the table that I need. But so you have this table, and, and this is what the Kohathites would do, is they would take out the old bread, which was just as good as the new bread. It had been kept by God. And, and they would bring it out, and they would, they would show it to the people, and they would say, see how beloved you are of God. Because that's the thing. The, the, the car is nice, but what it represents is even better. God was thinking about me. Of the entire universe. The God who's, who's keeping track of everything. He was thinking about me. He was loving me. He, like That's what gives me significance. Is that God finds me significant. That's what gives me value. Is that God finds me valuable. That I am the apple of his eye. That I am his dear pre- treasure. That I am in his hand. And they would say, see how much God loves you. <laughs> what a wonderful God to have within his tabernacle. What other gods in the Middle East? <laughs> Come on. What other gods 3,500 years ago were obsessed about the love they had for their people? What other gods nowadays? I mean, where can you go? On, uh, you, you, can you go 6th Street and find out how valuable you are <laughs> once your money runs out? Can you, like, <laughs> I mean, you're valuable for a minute. But, but what, like, where, where else? What, what other deity? What other institution? It's not even deity. What other organization when you have nothing to give to them? What other political party when you won't even vote for them? What, uh, where, what, like, what else in this world can you think of? That no matter what you do or how far you run or what you, that you are beloved. Like, oh, this is crazy. It's crazy. Today, when I went and parked my car and pulled out, I opened the door and, yeah. <laughs> it didn't fall, it was just there, right there on the little yellow line. Now, if I would have parked like most Texans, I wouldn't have found it. But I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. You get, get in between those lines. God's got something for you. Um, <laughs> stay in your lane. Come on, somebody. God's got something for you in your lane. And it's just, it's just, not, just, because, not because I'm doubting, not because I'm fearful, but just because he's good, because he loves me. He, he likes me. He likes you. He likes you. He thinks you're, he thinks you're funny. He thinks you're fun to be around. He wants you in his presence, 24/7. And when he, when he couldn't get his people in there, he said, "Well, can I at least get a stand-in? Can I at least get a stand-in? Can we at least just have some bread to remind me about how good I've been to them and how much I love them?" Would you close your eyes with me and just bow your heads for just a moment? I, you don't have to bow your heads if you don't want to. I don't mind, whatever. But we're just going to go to the Lord in prayer. Man, I just feel like the Father is coming alongside some of us. You know? You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to. He's not here to judge you. He's here to welcome you and invite you. 
And everything that needs changing, he can help you change. He never asks us to change anything without his power and his grace. And so whatever the future may hold, he's going to be there for you. But I feel like he's inviting some of us just to say yes to him, to recognize, one, that he's been there all along. Even when we were more messed up than we are right now, he's been there all along. He's been loving us all along. And he's even been providing for us all along. He's brought stuff into our lives. He's just good. And he's just asking you to recognize that. He's asking you, hey, look, your face is ever before me. Why don't you turn your face to me and see me for who I am? And why don't you welcome me? Why don't you come into relationship with me? Why don't you say yes to me? My, my, my darling is the lily among thorns. I'm just waiting for her to turn to me. Hmm. Father, we just thank you for your spirit that's in this room that's communicating truth to us. That's opening up our eyes and our minds to new, to new ideas and new realizations that's turning on the light. We've been walking and barely making it, but when the light turns on, we look back and we're like, oh, God was there. I didn't know. Lord, heal our memories. Yeah, heal, heal our memories because our memories aren't accurate. The way we experience something is not necessarily the way that it happens. You were in the hospital room. Though my mother and father may forsake me, God will never forsake me. That the way what I experienced, I was caught up in what I was, what I what I thought was my source. I was caught up in what I thought was there to to heal me. But you were there with me, and it's evidenced by the fact that I got out of it. It's evidenced by the fact that you brought me through. It's I see your evidence, the crops that you have blessed. You know the the evidence of your goodness is all around me. It's ever before me. Lord, help us to turn to the, to the north side of things and, and just see all that you've done for us. And not, not just so that we'll be thankful, but so that we'll, 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 we'll fall in love. Heal our memories of everything that we were disappointed by that didn't happen and we thought would. Heal our memories with every, all of our dreams that haven't come to realization yet. Help us to see you. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. If we have any faith at all, it's because you started it long before we even wanted to turn to you at all or come to church, definitely. You were pursuing us. So we say yes to you. We just surrender to you. It's such love. In the face of such love, we turn ourselves over to you. That is the appropriate response. Hebrews uh, says, I beseech you, or Romans says, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Like now that you saw his mercy, now that you got a glimpse of this, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that you be the bread. Which the bread, man, it's, it was ground down a lot. A lot of beating, a lot of grinding. There's a lot of hardship to our life. There's a lot of difficulty. But Lord, we present it all to you. The abundance, the blessedness, and the brokenness. We present it all to you. We just want to dwell in your presence. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present, just lay it out before him. Just, just say, Lord, whatever I got, this is yours. In Jesus' name. The other thing right next to the bread is this little thing of incense. You might have noticed in the video. If we can put that picture up. I just feel like I just, just want to share this real quick, just to add to what God's doing. But that little cup on top of each bit of bread, that's um, frankincense. And Jesus was given frankincense at his birth. It was, it was usually used as an aroma, but it was too expensive for your average person to have. And God tells, tells them to keep frankincense there. And then when they, when they swap out the bread, take the frankincense and pour it on the altar, the fire, let it, let it burn. And the smell of that rises to heaven. It's, it's symbolic of worship. And um, what, what, what struck me as weird was, where in the world are they going to get frankincense? 
they're in the wilderness. And so I started studying, how do you make frankincense? And, and I was reading Jewish writings and stuff. And what, basically what they said is they would have known how to make frankincense because when they were slaves in Egypt, frankincense was a major commodity that they would use in the wrapping of the mummies. So they've, they've actually found traces of frankincense in ancient mummies. So slaves would be the one to harvest the frankincense. And it comes from a certain plant or a tree bark that's like in that region. And it just struck me as so interesting how this is a common pattern throughout the tabernacle. God asked them to do these things. But God never asked him to hire a contractor to build the tabernacle. <laughs> they, they also didn't have to get any permits, which would have been nice. Um, yeah, second bathroom is coming. But, but they, they, they couldn't hire any contractor. They'd do the work themselves. But, you know, all the work needed, they would have been trained in in Egypt. They learned as slaves. And this is something that I think God wants to do in our life. It's like, sometimes I think we think that we are like working for money over here. And then one of these days we're going to figure out what we need to do over here, like in church. Like what if it's the same thing? What if the only difference is this time I'm going to do it out of worship? Like what if what, I, what, what brought me money over here, God also wants to use to bring him glory over here? the exact same thing because sometimes people are like well I can't lead a, a prayer group and I, I can't lead a small group you know because I'm too busy like running this business and I'm like run the business like you'd be better off you're more effective in a boardroom than a prayer meeting anyway because God's gifted you in boardrooms so so be in a boardroom and take your boardroom and offer it as a as a sacrifice to God Take, your, take your, your schooling and offer it as a sacrifice to God. Everybody doesn't have to attend the same small group to be saved. Like, we're, we're, we're all, like, like, there's stuff that you've learned how to do. And you thought it was just to help you get by. Really, you were, you were just, what you call getting by is, that, God calls practice. You were just practicing in order to get you better to be able to present something really awesome to him. You made all your mistakes on them. <laughs> that that company, it cost them. That they they paid for all your stuff, uh, so that you can bring it into the kingdom, and just bless him with it. And like I think God's just so cool like that. Like from from the carpentry to the to the sewing that they needed to do, especially this frankincense. What did, what does a nomadic tribe in a wilderness need frankincense for? They're like, I'm done with that. Don't have to make any more frankincense. This is great. I can just stand and sway all day in front of the presence of God. God's like, yeah, no. I want you to go get some of that bark, you know, and break it down. Because I want to show how I redeem stuff, you know. I want to show how I put it to a better use. You know, I just, I just, I take it and yeah. Now I'm going to bless my name with it. I'm going to make people smell me all over the place. That maybe they don't see Jesus, but they can smell him in the boardroom. They can smell him at Sea Fan. They can smell him. He doesn't, they don't have to see him to smell him. And that's actually what I'm going to talk about next week, especially with our little push to wear these shirts. We're going to try to, try to smell up this area. Because it's not separate. It's not, it's not sac sacred and secular. It's not, no. It's all sacred. It's like God, he is, he is reconciling all things to himself. So all things are getting into right relationship with himself. I could keep preaching, but I won't. 